Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education, part of the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Haber, and today we're joined by Joshua Kim, Director of Digital Learning Initiatives at the Dartmouth Center for the Advancement of Learning, and Edward Maloney, Executive Director of the Center of New Designs and Learning and Scholarship at Georgetown. Their titles sound unfamiliar. That's because the two of them are part of a small but growing cadre of learning innovators that have emerged during an era of unprecedented change in America's colleges and universities. And their new book, Learning Innovations and the Future of Higher Education from Johns Hopkins Press talks about how this new breed of specialists emerged and what it might mean for higher education. Josh, Edward, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having us. So uh, before we get started, can you each tell listeners about your background? Uh, Josh, do you want to go first? Sure. So Jonathan and I first met at an Appalachian Mountain Club summer camp at Echo Lake, a family camp. And got to know each other by hiking around Maine. I think that was about, was that like a decade ago? About that, our kids were much smaller then. Yeah, our, kid, our kids were little. So as Jonathan said, I'm my primary appointments at Dartmouth, actually in a new role since our first book came out. I'm the director of online programs and strategy, but doing much of the same work. I'm also a, a senior scholar at Georgetown at Candles that, that Eddie's brought me into which is very exciting. And my background is sociology and demography. Okay, and Ed, your turn. Yeah, so uh, Eddie Maloney at uh, Georgetown University. I've been here for about uh, 21 years. In fact, this month, 21 years. I am the executive director of our Center for New Designs and Learning and Scholarship, which we take the initialism of CNDLS and call ourselves candles on campus. I'm also a faculty member in our Department of English and a faculty member and the founding director of a graduate program in learning design and technology That's an MA program that actually is trying to help um, train the next generation of learning innovators to do this kind of work that we're here to talk about today. Okay, and let's get into that work. The big idea in your new book is that higher education has been undergoing what you call a turn to learning over the last couple of decades. Now, most people listening to this podcast probably assume that colleges and universities have always been in the learning business. So uh, what do you mean by the phrase? This is Eddie. This is a great question. So one of the things that we have certainly tracked, noticed, and tried to unpack in our work is this kind of shift in the past about 30 years, though it accelerated about eight years ago, and I, I would say it's now in uh, hyperspeed uh, in the past few months, where universities realized that they not only needed to teach and learn our students, but they actually needed to make investments in that, that to do that work, to understand the complexity of how teaching and learning was changing, um, whether because of the digital a revolution, or it happened to be because we were learning more about learning science and how students were learning and what it meant to teach uh, to students who were adapting to these new modes and these 
these uh, this new access to information. All of that was starting to really affect how we were able to teach. And the institutions that we are part of, and institutions across the country and across the world, really needed to, to try to step up and pay some attention to that in a way that was intentional, that put resources behind it, that put people behind it who had expertise in, in learning innovation and learning science, who were learning designers, who were specialists in educational technology and so on. And when they did that, when they started to do that and uh, started to pay attention in that way, we saw what we what we call a turn to learning, where institutions really started to make that investment. And as I alluded to, you know, over the past uh, month or so, or now five months, we've actually seen uh, that investment pay off at the institutions that have, were able to make that investment. And it'd be a problem at institutions that either didn't um, or were unable to make that investment as we've uh, all responded to this pandemic. Yeah, I'm curious, what is this turn to learning made up of? Who's leading it and what are they doing? Sure, this is Josh. I'll take that one. Just to kind of go back to something that Eddie said, and I know we'll talk about it later, but our book came out right before COVID hit and it's been kind of going on. We've been thinking about this while we've all been dealing with with COVID and we've very much seen it, as Eddie mentioned, that schools that are investing in learning and bringing in people to campus who are experts and trained in, in how people learn in centers for teaching and learning, in online learning units, in academic computing units, these schools have been able to make the transition to remote learning during COVID in a much smoother way than schools that either did not make that investment or outsourced those operations to online program management or OPM providers to do their online programming. So one of the things that we identified and really make a case for in the book is that learning and all the components now that go to, go into learning are a core competency for colleges and universities. And every school needs to have a strategy to make investments so that they can work with faculty to advance student learning. And working with faculty, as Eddie talked about, that's bringing people like learning designers or media educators or experts in analytics. It's thinking about the, the physical classrooms as well as the digital classrooms and how those work together. And we found that was actually pretty widespread uh, across higher education with, again, that caveat that with the concern of some schools deciding to outsource that, that competency. Well, interesting. And, and I know in your book, you traced one major catalyzing event was the advent of massive open online courses. The last guest we had on this podcast was Jeff Young, who covered MOOCs for, at the time, the Chronicle of Higher Education. Now he's at EdSurge. had a good reminisce about MOOCs, but you know, highlighted MOOCs are obviously still around. But you really sort of pinpointed that MOOC moment, sort of 2012, 2013, is something that got this whole college and universities investing in learning specialists of various kinds you described, got that off the ground. Can you explain the role MOOCs played in the phenomena? This is Eddie. I think in, in about 2012, 2013, when the kind of MOOC wave hit, there was a recognition that a lot of schools need to start paying attention in new ways, at least, or maybe more seriously, to what digital technologies were both bringing to the teaching and learning experience, but also the ways in which they might threaten the kind of longstanding monopoly that uh, institutions of higher education had on teaching and learning credentialing, um, giving students this kind of experience. And there was a lot of anxiety at, at every level of, of most institutions that started to pay attention to this. And in part, the answer to your previous question about you know who was leading this, at least at that time, we started to see that senior leadership at institutions, presidents and provosts, 
were really starting to pay attention to this challenge, to this problem. And they started to help move, I think, the institutions toward uh, or turn to um, that kind of learning that we were really trying to mark in our book. So MOOCs, um, in part because of that sense in which they were going to disrupt what was happening in higher education, challenge the, the kind of supremacy of higher education as this space that helped to train people to their future careers and to give them access to lifelong learning and so on and so forth, really started to create that kind of momentum that started to really catalyze um, this turn to learning that we've uh, that we've been talking about and are really kind of fascinated in. So it was, it was just really this intersection of digital technology. Um, it was certainly a question of scale question of cost and its relationship to the value of higher education vis-a-vis cost. It was a question of, you know, ultimately, what was the best teaching and learning experience for students? And, you know, I think that's played out in a variety of different ways, which I'm sure we could talk about. I know the schools that made sort of the biggest investment in MOOCs, uh, particularly places like Harvard, MIT, they were very much about that this is an investment in the residential experience or in transforming the local college, not just sort of giving things away for free. That's exactly right. And, and one of the things that some institutions did was invest uh, very heavily in not only what was happening in that kind of external space, in the MOOC space, in the online space, but really tried to see that as an opportunity to um, to change what was happening on campus and then use that, that work that was happening in MOOCs to kind of really radically alter how faculty were using digital materials on campus. And all of this has a, has a long pedigree. You can go back to open educational resources. You can think about different ways in which different kinds of tools uh, started to change our approach to teaching and learning. There's, there are a lot of pieces here that really started to come together. And, you know, an overused phrase was that this was an inflection point. That sense of all of these different tensions kind of meeting at that moment um, really became important for us to pay attention to and try to resolve and understand and respond to. And thinking of overused phrases, uh, another one you mentioned was disruption. And another guest we had recently, Michael Horn, who, as you know, his his beat is disruptive innovation in education. Now, in your book, you dedicate a chapter to why disruptive innovation theory might not be applicable to higher education. Can you first explain what that theory is and why it might not be the way to think about innovation at the college and university level? Sure. This is Josh. I'll, I'll try to take, take that one on. First of all, just we do have, have a, a chapter about why disruptive innovation is not the ideal or optimal framework to understand learning, learning innovation and higher education change. But I do want to say Michael Horn, he, he's a friend and his thinking about higher education is very nuanced. And, you know, and we, we have very good, good discussions. I think it's the case that other people within higher ed and often outside of higher ed, companies have used the language of disruption for their own kind of commercial ends and not really honored the nuances and complexities of the theory. So I don't want to set this up like we're having this big argument. You know, it's more a, a conversation among friends here. But I think most, most of your listeners will know about disruptive innovation with the idea that incumbents have a process where, where they make small and incremental investments that add to the costs and make small improvements. And Christensen called those uh, sustaining innovations. And a disruptive innovation is when a, a new player comes along and offers a product or a service that is not nearly as good, substantially worse, but also substantially cheaper. And this, this much cheaper service can bring non-adopters or more or non-customers into the market. And eventually that uh, disruption will prove and will knock out the high cost people who do sustaining innovation. I think what our issue with this is that that language of disruption has been taken up by a lot of people who want to change higher education, which has meant that you have a lot of people, a lot of companies who are looking for this magic bullet 
for this one thing that's going to totally change how higher education is done. Where the reality is that higher education is an incredibly complex ecosystem, highly regulated. The majority of students uh, go to public institutions and community colleges. And that if, if you want to understand how higher education is and can improve, you have to uh, honor that those nuances and complexities and think about innovation in a way that that's actually applies to our complicated system. So that's where the, the, the chapter tries to draw that distinction. And we try to offer some, some other frameworks to understand higher education change. Can I just add something to that? Because Josh is, is absolutely right. I think that is, that is a big part of the, the challenge. I would also say that there's, there's something really valuable about the, the tension in higher education between rapid change and actually kind of slower evolutionary change. Higher ed is responsible for trying to make to try to continue kind of an educational system that is working with millions of students across this country and, and you know, tens of millions uh, in, in the world. It's not something that um, any one system can easily do. And, and that complexity of the ecosystem that Josh was describing is just crucial to both the success, but also to allow that kind of full range of possibilities for those students. I like the idea that there are multiple channels for innovation. Disruption theory is one sort of mechanism, but to a large extent, you're talking about sort of more methodical, but still sort of internal, if not disruption, then sort of transformation. I think that's right. Yeah. You guys have these sort of long and interesting titles as do the organizations that you lead. I'm just curious about the sort of network of educational innovators that you're part of? I mean, who are they? What's the sort of network like? How do you interact with each other? And, and I'm curious, is, do members have institutional power at many schools that things are getting done? Are you beholden on administrators who have this high on their agenda? How is the whole sort of program working? Is it happening at many or most universities or just a few? So this is Eddie. That's a, that's a great question. And I'll actually go back to the kind of the MOOC uh, wave and um, start there because I think in, in many respects, though not the kind of the original moments of a lot of this uh, network, uh, it certainly was a kind of catalyst moment where a lot of people started to come together across institutions of different types, invested in trying to understand this problem that was in front of them. How do we pay attention to these new courses that scale to 125,000 students? And what's the impact going to be on our, our campuses, our residential education? And they, they actually started to kind of build connections and they, they tried to think about whether or not data could be shared, all sorts of challenges and problems with that. Um, and if not data, could you start talking about practices? Are there practices that are better at certain kinds of institutions? Are there practices that are shared across all institutions? All of these things started to become part of a conversation about trying to address the particular problem of MOOCs, what do we do with them? And we started to see new networks uh, popping up in addition to what have been longstanding existing networks like the Pod Network and Educause and so on. And these new networks were, were a bunch of people who were kind of in this weird place. They were, they were not just educational technologists in the way that you might find at Educause or they weren't solely directing centers for teaching excellence or part of centers for teaching excellence that you might find at POD. But they were kind of this kind of combination of people who are interested in educational innovation. They were interested in technology innovation. They were interested in data and, and understanding how data played a part. And they were also, I think, fundamentally interested in that kind of critical understanding of what higher education is. Right? They were asking questions about what is the role of these things called MOOCs in higher education, in the future of higher education? So it wasn't just at a level of 
can we design something or can we understand how to teach better? It was how do all of these things kind of come together at this particular moment in time in this space um, and have an impact on what the future of higher education is? And so the people who kind of make up this network, the people who are part of it, who are, they start at the local level. They're my colleagues at Georgetown. They're Josh's colleagues at Dartmouth. And then they extend to these uh, institutions that we're peers with or that we're partners with who all have this interest in all of these intersecting questions. What is higher education? What is its future? What's the relationship between technology? What is the relationship with design? How do we think about data? How do we understand learning science and its relationship to what the future of higher education is? Not just in this kind of contained way of what happens in the classroom, but as the core tenet or principle of what higher education is there to do. Um, and that is to help our students learn both knowledge that is in existence and knowledge that is new and newly created by scholars and faculty in the field. Interesting. And, and I, I know you sort of describe in the book how this network has been communicating via social media, via Slack, via organizations like Hale, where kind of we last met. It sounds relatively loose-knit. Is that the case? Or is there sort of growing institutionalism within your community of innovators? So I, I think it, it is, it's both. It's loose-knit in the sense that you have people who kind of connect ad hoc randomly. And then you have things like the Hale Network where, you know, there are, there had been at least when we were all traveling, we were all out in the world, meetings and people would get together in kind of intentional ways um, at institutions or at places that could support that kind of meeting. So I, I would say it's, it's kind of both. We have now uh, random Zoom calls or ad hoc Zoom calls or different kinds of conference calls where people are trying to think through these things. What's happening in the world right now? What do you think, Josh? Is that is that fair? Yeah, and, and I'd say that one of the things that I think we very much missed because of COVID is that we haven't been able to get together like we have in the past. And certainly, I'm definitely feeling that in the, the, the work that, that I do on campus. I really need to talk to peers and colleagues at, at other schools to figure out what to do because it's often making it up as you go along. And you really need these these colleagues who've also been trying things and trying to push learning innovation to figure out so you don't make the same mistakes. And, you know, as good as it is to talk in an ad hoc way on, on Zoom or by email, as, as, um, as Eddie mentioned, you really don't get that kind of thick communication on Zoom. You really need to be in a place and sharing meals and you know, taking walks and we've been doing writing retreats together and things like that. So I, I, I know I'm, I'm really missing the, those, uh, those in-person connections. Yeah, I want to get into some of your work during the COVID crisis also. But before that, I just wanted to touch on one of your more interesting ideas in the book was a chapter where you talk about making educational innovation its own academic discipline. Now, one of the things I really liked about that chapter is you spell out arguments for and against such a proposal. So could you explain what are some of the reasons you think your field should end up and as an academic department separate from, say, an education department? I would say this is Josh. I, I'd say this is one of the ideas that we're, we're still trying to work out and make sense of and trying to understand is what we're doing. Is it a new interdisciplinary field? And what actually does that mean? It, it comes down to um, it comes down to a number of things. The first reason why we, we think that we, we might be at the beginning or part of an emerging academic field or inter interdisciplinary field is that we're seeing a bunch of people from all sorts of different academic backgrounds at different places all looking at similar problems, but they're doing it from all sorts of different locations within universities. Some people work for centers for teaching and learning, some are in 
academic computing units, some are an online learning unit, some are in continuing education unit. Very few are, are in departments or schools of education. So we're seeing that there's a, a lot of people coming together and trying to understand how colleges and universities are changing and evolving to advance learning. So they're looking at questions that have this intersection between what happens with learning with, with students and faculty, classes for online learning, and then what's happening at the institutional level, the organizational level, and trying to make make a connection. So we're seeing all that, that happen, but there's really not a good place for that. The other part of it, academic discipline, there's a couple other parts. One is that in academic discipline, it's kind of like a, like a house where people kind of go to, where people in the house speak a similar language, they have similar assumptions, and they have some time to do things, and they have a, a community of peers and scholars to compare and build on each other's work. Uh, we don't really have that that house, and which means that when Eddie and I try to do our, our writing and our scholarship, we kind of need to fit it in around our day job, which I think is particularly difficult during COVID when most folks' day jobs in, in this world have, have gone absolutely insane. So there's not this, this ability to have the time or the space to explore these areas. I guess the, the final thing, and, and you mentioned this, is that academic disciplines create means of, of knowledge creation that are, are more durable and more durable than social media exchange. There's academic scholars write books, they write articles, they're peer-reviewed. There's some durability to, to what's uh, written, and then that allows that scholarship to be taught in graduate programs and you know to create the next generation of scholars. And I think Eddie and I were concerned that as vibrant as the conversation is on social media, a lot of these ideas that we've been kicking around and trying to develop really did not have a, a durable place for them to live. So we would like to help create that context. Getting back to the big germ in the room, this book came out before the COVID-19 crisis hit. And before going into de details about what you think this means for your thesis, I gather that the two of you have been busy writing a new book based on your series from Inside Higher Ed about the different ways colleges and universities might open this fall. Can you talk about that project and talk about how your analysis is playing out now that schools are announcing their plans for the fall? Yeah, so we, we did um, package together a lot of the work that we did uh, this spring, trying to think about what are some options for institutions uh, in the fall as they make those decisions to give not really a kind of definitive sense of, you know, these are the only choices, but really to try to help people at institutions that were making these decisions understand that there are a lot of different options that can be put together that could be combined to try to create a rich, engaging experience for our students in the fall, depending on what the health situation allows for, depending on what the financial situation um, at the institution allows for, depending on um, what the capacity of the faculty is and what kind of structure they have for support. Um, and all of those things kind of come into play. And so we, we created a, a kind of framework of 15 different scenarios, not meant to be exhaustive uh, and certainly not meant to create anxiety that there were so many uh, scenarios that people could choose from, but to give people a kind of set of Lego blocks that they could put together and construct a scenario that worked for their institutions. Uh, one of the things I think we're seeing is that, well, certainly I think in the last week, we're actually seeing more and more institutions changing from their initial announcements. And that's going to happen probably even more as the, the pandemic starts to continue back into that kind of surge mode. But we are seeing that a lot of the things that we were we were writing, that we were thinking about were important to institutions. They were used by institutions. We've heard from 
colleagues, but we've heard from people uh, across the country, and we've heard from people that we, we didn't know. In fact, across the world, we was translated into Japanese, we, we learned fairly recently. But we've heard from people who have used those scenarios to either as a roadmap or as a kind of framework for thinking about the decisions that they were making. It's been quite gratifying, and we decided to put that together into a book that we think will not only be important for the fall, but into the spring and, and beyond. Yeah, do you want to tell us about that book and title when it's going to be coming out? So the book is actually called The uh, Low Density University, uh, 15 Scenarios for Higher Education. It's actually going to be out next week from Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, we're pretty excited about it. That's great. Okay. And uh, listeners, you heard about it here first. <laughs> that, that, in fact, that is very true. And just uh, tying everything back together, given the stresses placed on colleges due to COVID, is this a crisis that's going to galvanize the innovations you've written about? Or might schools get stuck thinking about little other than how to survive? You know, the, the, the timing that you asked this is interesting. You know, I, I think all of us are, are right in the middle of trying to figure out how fall is going to work. It seems quite overwhelming for a, a lot of reasons. Although as we write about in, in our in our new book, The Low Density University, we're actually very hopeful. We're hopeful for a lot of reasons. You know, we think we've learned a lot in the spring and the summer, and we think we'll be applying those learnings to increase in pretty substantial ways the, the quality of the educational experience that our students will have. So we're feeling good about what we've been able to do and, and really how mission-driven our institutions are and how everyone, and I think it's really the case, it's interesting at schools, that schools do a lot of different things, teaching, but research and service and sports and all that stuff. But for the last few months, all we've been doing is teaching and learning. You know, that's been the, the total focus and, and that's sort of gratifying. So we, we, we think that while there'll be challenges in the fall and, and, and the spring, we, we think we're up for those challenges. And you know, longer term, the the kind of things that we wrote about in, in our in our first book, how the necessity for schools to invest in learning and to understand what that means, which invest in not only faculty, which is important, but the infrastructure that faculty teach in, the the experts, the ed, the non-faculty educators who work with faculty, investing, experimenting, and trying new things. You know, again, the schools that, that have done this had, I think, you know, an easier time making the transition to uh, remote learning. And we think, you know, going forward, it's very clear case for, for every school to, to make those investments because it's, it's a matter of, of resiliency now. You need to make those investments so you can thrive and no, no matter what comes. So I, I would say that we're optimistic. I, I'll be interested what how Eddie would answer this question. Yeah, I mean, I, I well, I completely agree with you, Josh. Don't I always think that that's exactly right? I think we'll, you know, we want to look for that kind of investment. And we want, we're, we're certainly hopeful that schools will see the value of that. I think one potential, well, let me talk about two results or consequences or uh, maybe outcomes of kind of where we find ourselves right now. One is that institutions have had to come together. You, you used the word, um, Jonathan, galvanize, and I think that's exactly right. Institutions had to galvanize the structures that they had in place to try to address the challenge that was in front of them. And that often meant across these institutions that centers, that organizations, that departments, that schools, dean level and director level and provost level, all of these people were starting to come together and work together toward addressing a problem that was now common to all of them. And in some sense, I, my guess is that you, what you'll find at a lot of institutions is that they've learned how to work together in ways that are much more powerful and much more impactful 
uh, to try to solve these kinds of problems than they probably ever had to do. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that they didn't work together. They just worked together in their own space, often connecting where they needed to connect. Now they actually have to kind of come together in Zoom rooms and in other spaces to try to understand how to address this challenge of COVID-19. And they're doing that. And so everyone's learning a lot. Everyone's learning a lot about their institutions. Everyone's learning a lot about higher education. Everyone's learning a lot about teaching and learning. Everyone's learning a lot about their students. They're learning a lot about what it means to actually invest in this space in ways that are both academic and intellectual and scholarly, but also financial and driven by you know health considerations and so on and operational. All of those things, I think, will have a longstanding impact on how institutions move out of this challenge. People will have built relationships that will matter. People will have built structures that will hopefully continue. I and mean, people will see that there's an important kind of way in which what happens in the teaching and learning space is in fact central and um, necessary. Just this idea that students are there to kind of get a degree and learn something, but to the core tenet of what higher ed is about. And then the second thing I would say is that a lot of this is built on these kinds of learning innovations that we talk about. It's built on the learning innovations that we think are so important to the future of higher education. And so not only do you have all these people that I just you know mentioned coming together and thinking about this, but you also have them thinking about ways of teaching that are innovative, that are going to reach students in an online space or going to reach students in a hybrid modality. I mean, even the fact that you probably have uh, faculty across institutions everywhere in this country and in the world who are using words like hybrid and high flex and trying to understand what um, a mode of teaching is, things that they've just never likely probably talked about in, in before are now thinking about these things in ways that can be meaningful going forward. So I, I would say we're, we're going to kind of, I'm hopeful that we're going to catapult out of this experience with a lot of attention to teaching and learning, but we're also going to kind of slingshot through it with a sense that our institutions are complex, our institutions are complicated in really important ways that help to support this kind of really innovative approach to teaching and learning that is necessary for the future of higher ed. Well, talk about the right book at the right time. So, Josh Eddy, it's been great talking to both of you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks, Jonathan. And, and Julie says hello also. <laughs> <laughs> Send my regards to the whole family. Yours too, Eddie. Thanks, Jonathan. If you've listened to previous podcasts featuring other authors talking about what the coronavirus crisis might mean for higher education, the debate seems to not be about whether colleges and universities need to change, but what such change should look like. Even before the pandemic, rising costs, enrollment declines due to demographics, and shrinking public funding were pointing towards an end to business as usual in higher ed, most dramatically with the closing of several smaller schools with hints that future closures were in the offing. Today's authors pointed out that any change must take place within a highly complex set of products, programs, and missions that fall under the category of university, although some have suggested we use the term multiversity to capture the range of things schools do other than educate. While technology is going to play a role in what comes next in higher education, Perhaps we need to better understand the complete ecosystem technology will be inserted into before deciding what form learning innovation should take as education is asked to transform yet again to meet contemporary needs. Thanks for joining. Keep stopping by to hear from additional authors and thinkers here at New Books in Education. Yeah.